Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. This is Anthony Buzzard inviting you to search the Scriptures with us once again. We're glad you joined us for another session of Scripture Searching Together as we investigate Jesus' favorite topic, the Gospel about the Kingdom of God. We wonder if you've ever stopped to ask yourself the question, what is the Christian Gospel or Good News? What did Jesus and the Apostles challenge their audiences to believe as the Gospel? What did Jesus mean by the phrase so often found on his lips, the Kingdom of God? When did you last hear a preacher or evangelist invite us to repent and believe in the Gospel about the Kingdom of God as Jesus invited his audiences in Mark 1:14 and 15. And of course that passage in Mark chapter 1, 14 and 15 is a programmatic summary of the whole ministry of Jesus. It tells us what the basis of all his preaching was, and that basis is quite clearly outlined for us there as the gospel about the kingdom of God. And that's what we're urged to believe, you note, in Jesus' first command. He says, repent and believe in the gospel of the kingdom. So we see from this primary text then in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, that the first step in intelligent discipleship to Jesus is repenting as turning around and reorientating our life in a brand new direction and then believing in what Jesus referred to as the kingdom of God or the gospel about the kingdom of God. Now here's where all the problems and divisions in the church arise, we suggest. It is at this basic first level step that all of the confusion in contemporary denominations arises. People have not defined the kingdom of God accurately in its first century Jewish context and therefore they are unable to comply with the first commandment of Jesus Christ, namely to believe and commit themselves to faith in the kingdom of God as Jesus commanded it in Mark chapter 1 verses 14 and 15. When Jesus commanded faith in the gospel about the kingdom of God, he was urging men and women to come in line with God's great plan. Now this model of faith, this way of believing, had already been demonstrated brilliantly by Abraham in the Hebrew Bible. In Genesis 12 we read that God commanded Abraham to leave the comfortable surroundings of his own family and his own circle of friends and his own land and to depart simply believing in God and his trustworthiness for another land, another country. Now we know that Abraham was also promised a seed and so on and that seed was the Messiah. But many Bible readers have not taken full account of the fact that Abraham was promised a land and during his lifetime he never owned or possessed that land. He did in fact own a very tiny portion of it, a small piece of land in which he buried his wife Sarah, but Abraham never received the promise of the land as God gave it to him. Now that immediately then sets up a tension. How, we ask, as we follow the story of God's dealings with Abraham, can God's promise be fulfilled? And the only possible answer is this, God's promise to Abraham is yet to be fulfilled in the resurrection when Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the faithful of the Old Testament period are brought to life again to receive that promise of the land and that land is described in the New Testament 
as the kingdom of God. The future kingdom of God on this earth is simply an alternative way of describing the land promised to Abraham and the faithful of the Bible. You see, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus speaks of the poor in spirit as those who are going to receive the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And in the very same context, he speaks of the meek who are going to inherit the earth. So we make an equation here. By understanding the parallel between the kingdom of heaven offered to the poor in spirit and the earth offered to the meek in Matthew 5, verse 5. Now, the confusing element that has made all of this so terribly complicated for Bible readers is the idea that Jesus offered heaven as a reward to the faithful. As a leading theologian in Britain said in this century a few years ago, heaven in the Bible is nowhere the destination of the dying. And he was absolutely right, of course. The earth is the destiny of all the faithful of all the ages. Jesus said that the meek were going to inherit the earth. He nowhere speaks of anybody going to heaven. Over 3,000 times in our Bible, the earth is mentioned. God is interested in the future of this planet. And we've been terribly confused by the long-standing tradition that seems to dictate that we forget about the earth and fly off to heaven. Once we drop the idea of heaven going and see that it is not a biblical idea at all, we shall begin to read the Bible with clarity. Everything strains towards the moment when the resurrected of all the ages, the faithful, that is, will inherit the earth, and that in its turn will be the fulfillment of the great land promise or earth promise made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. As one leading commentator in our time points out, the term kingdom of heaven is unfortunate because it misleads people into thinking that the kingdom of heaven will not be upon the earth. In fact, the kingdom of heaven simply means the kingdom which comes from heaven, the kingdom which has a divine origin. But it comes to this earth when Jesus himself as Messiah and king of that kingdom is destined to return to the earth to establish the kingdom on this planet. The term heaven as a place removed from this earth is never offered to the believers as their reward or destiny. Here's what one professor of theology discovered after an extensive investigation of the term heaven in the teaching of Jesus. He said this, In few, if any, instances of the use of the word heaven is there any parallel with modern usage? The gospel records of our Lord's life and teaching do not speak of going to heaven, as a modern believer so naturally does. Rather, Jesus' emphasis is on that which is heavenly coming down to man. Our modern way of speaking of life with God as being life in heaven is not the way the gospels or Jesus speak of the matter. Especially in the teaching of Jesus, there is no suggestion that he was offering his disciples the certainty of heaven after this life. Heaven as the future abode of the believers is conspicuous by its absence from St. Paul's thought, says another leading uh, commentator on the Bible. And he adds this, The second coming is always from heaven, like in the earliest letters of Paul, 1 Thessalonians, until the latest letters of Paul, in Philippians 3, verse 20. Paul, you see, takes it for granted that believers will have their place in a messianic kingdom on this earth, and he doesn't need to mention this 
in every other verse. It's simply part of the furniture of the New Testament because it was based on the Hebrew Bible, the promise made to Abraham that he would one day inherit the earth as his possession. Well, if that is so, you may say, how come the idea of going to heaven is so deeply entrenched in our thinking as churchgoers? Well, what many Bible readers have not realized is simply this. Soon after the writing of the New Testament was completed, towards the end of the first century, there was an enormous influx of Greek believers into the church, and Greek leadership in the church took over from the Jewish leadership. Now, just as Paul had foreseen, this resulted in a radical change of thinking, a shift in the whole perspective of the faith. And one of the things that was early lost in those centuries in which the shift between Jewish and Greek ways of thinking was taking place was to do with this matter of our destiny. You see, the primary relationship of the New Testament is not with the Gentile environment, but rather with the Jewish heritage and environment. As one leading writer on this subject says, we are often led by our traditional creeds and theology to think in terms of Gentile and especially Greek concepts. But we know, this author goes on, that not later than the second century there began the systematic effort of the church fathers to show that the Christian faith perfected the best in Greek philosophy. A careful study of the New Testament ought to block any trend to regard the New Testament as a group of documents expressing the Gentile mind. The New Testament's relationship is primarily and overwhelmingly with Judaism and the Old Testament. And the New Testament speaks always with disapproval and condemnation and denunciation of Gentile cults and philosophies. The New Testament agrees essentially with the Jewish indictment of the pagan world. The modern church, however, often misunderstands its relation to the Old Testament and to Israel and often inclined to prefer the Greek attitude over the New Testament view. And that was a quotation from a leading scholar in a book called The New Testament Against Its Environment. And that sort of statement could be echoed in many scholarly works. Scholars know that there was a radical shift in thinking that took place soon after the writing of the New Testament was complete, and traditions entered the Christian system at that point which were not biblical but which we have inherited and now assume to be biblical. Now, the art of intelligent Bible study is to sort out that additional traditional material from the pure word of the New Testament and the Bible itself. Another commentator on those early years of church history says this, and I quote, The New Testament remains basically Jewish, not Greek, though Greek in language and it can be understood only from the historical vantage point of the Judaism which provided the early church with its terminology and its whole frame of thought. End of quotation. Well, what is the relevance of these facts for our faith today? The simple truth is that we have not always inherited a pure version of the New Testament. Our own traditions are heavily influenced by the Greek philosophical ways of thinking that entered the church in the very early centuries. 
Problem is that if you believe a tradition long enough, you come to think that it's part of the biblical tradition itself, but it may not be. Hence the exhortation given us in Acts 17 verse 11, that we should search the Scriptures daily like the Bereans to see if what we're hearing from various quarters is true. God through the Scriptures engages us in an investigation of truth. In one passage he says, Come, let us reason together. We are to test all things. Jesus, you remember, complained about his contemporaries that they were mistaken not knowing the Scriptures. He also lamented the fact that people were prone to worship God in a way based on their own tradition, which all too easily negated God's revelation. In vain they worshipped, Jesus said, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. There's a tendency for us to worship in a way which makes sense to us, but true worship is to be given on the basis of spirit and truth. John 4, verse 24. Hence our need to check everything carefully against the gold standard of God's revealed will in the Bible. One of the greatest lessons we can learn from the Bible is that God chose to offer immortality or salvation to us through the Jews. Salvation is of the Jews, Jesus said. We invite you to ponder this important truth about the Jewishness of our Christian faith and join us again as we continue to probe Jesus' favorite topic, the gospel about the kingdom of God.